We're on. And we're off. I want to thank you, Christine, for that um, word about passion. Um, because for the last 37 years, I've been really passionate about lost people. Because believe it or not, I was one of them. And um, it's a privilege to be able to come and share today. I thank you, Russ, for giving me this privilege. Um, that's a good sign of delegation. And, it, and it's something rare. It's, a bit, it's rare like listening. You know, sometimes people don't listen. Um, so I hope you're all going to listen today. Eh? <laughs> so I'm just going to push this thing here because I tend to waffle a bit and I don't like waffling. We're off. So is that an FM waffle machine? It, it is, yeah. It just puts a zip across my mouth. So we've got a bit of a technical problem with the PowerPoint, so I'm going to say the numbers out so the person who's trying to shuffle all this, it's a really difficult job to do it on your phone. Um, the, my, my name's Rick. Um, I work with my wife, Moira, in a small antique restoration, furniture restoration business that we've been doing for the last 20 years. And I've been doing it for 44 years, so I started when I was 16. So I should know what I'm doing, shouldn't I? Um, today, I, I want to I talk about something. Um, I remember being in a service like this, and a, and a preacher was preaching, and he basically um, shouted at the audience, you need to get out there and tell people about Jesus. And he said, and if you don't, I'm going to shut the church down. Well, he did. He eventually did. But what he forgot to, to, to ask was, um, do you know why I want you to reach out? Do you know how to? And do you know where? So that's the points that I'm looking at today, three points. So why, how, and where? And the message is called Our Sphere of Influence. So PowerPoint one. My brief was this. How can we better equip our church people when it comes to witnessing for Christ with unbelievers in the world? Now, with some people, that's a little bit of a, an issue because sometimes people find it hard to share with other people. Um, and so I want to you know, be um, sensitive to that. So when I come to church on a Sunday, what do I want? Because we all come for a reason, don't we? I want to fellowship with you guys. I want to enjoy the presence of God. And I want to feel his tangible presence. I want the Holy Spirit to speak to me. But I realize that I'm only here for two hours. And there's 168 hours in the week. So what am I doing the other 166 hours of the week? And so that's part of what I want to get over today. So PowerPoint 2. Someone's, someone once was in a service and they challenged me. I was only a young Christian and they basically asked this question. If you were arrested for being a Christian, would they find enough evidence to convict you? <laughs> I, th I thought it was a bit weird because I was a squeaky new Christian. I'm thinking, well, isn't everybody, isn't everybody a full-time Christian? You know, what about the other 66 hours though? So... 
it's interesting. We do a really good job in equipping our people for service, you know, for music, for hospitality, for all of these different areas. But what about equipping our people for the other 166 hours of the week out in the community? You know, do we speak words into people's lives in the community? Do we pray for people, you know, while you're standing in the bus queue or at the checkout? You know, these are, th these are the things that God wants us to do because we've, are we part-time Christians or are we full-time Christians? I'm not saying that we're full-time Christians. So I like the message. Eugene Peterson says this. Um, it's Romans 12, verse 1. And he says, so here's what I want you to do. You're God helping you take your everyday, ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work and walking around life and place it before God as an offering. Now we talked about offering ourselves this morning, surrendering, Russ mentioned that. Our everyday ordinary lives, this is the 166 hours of the stuff that we do when we're not here for the two hours. So um, there is a bit of a thing, we have this sacred and secular divide you know, we think that what we do is all spiritual, but when we get out there, it's secular. You know, particularly our workplace. Um, I've never viewed my workplace as a, as a secular thing. I'm a full-time Christian, so therefore what I do, God redeems my time in that. He also speaks to people through that. So my every ordinary day life is important to God. In fact, he put Adam in the garden to work it before the fall. So now we're new believers in Christ, we're new creations in Christ. Shouldn't work be important? God created us to work. PowerPoint three. So how do I integrate my faith into my ordinary everyday life and influence lost people to become disciples of Jesus? Now, a lot of people get a bit touchy when we mention the, the word evangelism. You can almost hear the walls drop because <laughs> we've all had a bad experience, haven't we? Some, in some way or another. I can remember being a squeaky new Christian first week and I'm walking down the street of Wollongong. And I grew up in the north of England during the 60s and 70s. So I, I basically grew up in the gang culture so I could read a person's body language. And here's this joker, and I could see him out the corner of my eye, and he's coming at me really aggressive. And he's got a tract in his hand. I didn't even know what a tract was. Anyway, he comes up to me and real aggressively says, have you been washed in the blood of the lamb? <laughs> Almost with an American accent. And I, sorry about that. <laughs> and I'm, I'm standing there just thinking, why would I be washed in lamb's blood? I didn't, I didn't understand the lingo at all. And then he capped it off before I could actually answer the question and said, and if you haven't, you're going to hell. So that was a real downer. Now, I, now I knew enough to, to sort of tell him, well, Jesus wouldn't approach me like that. Paul wouldn't approach me like that. I'd read enough of the Bible. And so my testimony was that if you'd have met me on this particular street a week ago, you'd have been on the floor, because I would have just decked him. No questions asked. 
I wouldn't have even let him get the words out just because of the way that he approached me. So it's our approach that I want to talk about. And I've actually coined a word for people who are fearful of the word evangelism, and it's evangeliphobia. <laughs> you won't find it anyway, I just made it up. Um, we've all had, we all have fears, fear of rejection, you know, when it comes to sharing our faith, fear of failure, fear of man, you know, is one of them. And I think sometimes we put too much emphasis on the conversion rather than making disciples, because that's our brief from Jesus in the Great Commission. So I want to look at that. Before we do that, let's just pray. Heavenly Father, we just ask that your Holy Spirit just impress, you'd brood over us, Lord, and that you'd speak into our lives. Because, Lord, we just don't want to hear words. We want to put these words into action. We want to be obedient to you, Lord. So we just ask you to come in Jesus' name. So the first uh, point is, and this is PowerPoint 4, why should we make disciples? Now I thought I was going to use why shouldn't we make disciples, but I thought that might be a bit forceful. So why should we make disciples? Matthew 28, 16 to 20 is the Great Commission. Why is it great? Because Jesus is great. It says, Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded them. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Which word did I get wrong? Yeah. I did that to emphasize that it's us, you, that is giving the command to. I wanted to underline that or circle it or whatever you do on your little thing or um, But the emphasis here is not on, as we have pushed, the go. Because the disciples were already going. They'd already... Um, reproduced themselves five times. Now there were 72. They were the ones doing the baptizing too. So this was a message to people that were already going. So the Great Commission, like this service, the Great Commission was given in a service, a worship service. And it's important to note that because the main verse in this particular portion is verse 18, where Jesus says, all authority has been given to me. And that, that word is not dunamis, as we quite often talk about the power of God. It's a word called exousia, which means a legal right to rule. And so that's what Jesus is saying here. All authority, it was given why was it given? Because Jesus had died and rose from the dead. He'd conquered sin and death. So he was given the authority. And then you ask yourself the question, well, didn't he have that before? No, because that hadn't been dealt with. It had to be dealt with so that we could be sitting here today and so that we could reach those outside who are still far from God. And the the point that links us to 
verse 18 is the therefore. That makes it important. Because if you don't get the point of um, how great Jesus is, there's no point to actually going out and reaching reaching out to others. So I just want to read um, a, a verse from Colossians to show how wonderful Jesus is. And so we have Colossians 1, 15 to 20, the supremacy of Christ. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on on earth, visible and, and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things altogether. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So that's what makes him supreme. So the authority is Jesus' lordship. And he wants to be lord of every area. He wants to rule in every area, particularly in our hearts and in our lives. And in that 166 hours that we dwell outside. He wants to be lord of all, lord of everything, lord of our work, lord of our families, lord of everything that we do and think. There's nothing mundane to God. He wants to be involved in every area of our lives. He wants to touch every area of our lives because he wants to redeem that in the lives of others. He wants to touch others through his spirit. So my question today is, is Jesus enough? You're meant to reply to that, it's not. Okay, I'll ask it again. Is Jesus enough? He is enough. I was working in the law court this week, and I was working on the, um, where the lawyers sit, the bar. It's a great big table, and I was restoring it. And I was having my morning tea, and I was just looking around, and there's the dock behind me. It's like a little jail with bulletproof glass around it. And then I looked up to the judge's seat, which is right up there, and it gave me a picture of, of God that at some stage, Jesus is going to come back, and people will be judged. And I looked at that dock and I was, one of the things that I thought when it comes to this particular uh, portion of scripture, I thought to myself, I'm really grateful. I'm grateful that when I stand before God, I'll be standing before his mercy seat, not the judgment seat. I won't be in that dock. But then I cried because I thought to myself, I don't want to see people there either, you know? That, that broke my heart. I didn't want to see that. So, um, you know, God spoke to that. And then when I looked at the, the coat of arms, which is the Australian-British coat of arms, um, I was looking at it and I thought, that's not Latin. And there was a French, it's French under there. And in my broken French, it was Dieu et mon which is God and my right to rule. And Richard the Lionheart had that written there. And I thought, 
mm, that's just what I'm actually talking about. Jesus is right to rule in our lives. And as we said today about surrender, we need to surrender for God to do that. Um, I'd, like it's been said to before, you know, is it that we get more of him or is it that he gets more of us? And I think sometimes it's either way around. So we have to have an attitude of gratitude. I was really grateful. I'm so grateful that, that I know the Lord. <laughs> but I want others to know the Lord too. When it comes down to this, uh, it's a command from Jesus. We're commanded. There's um, an imperative there. And it isn't, it isn't on the go. It's on the make disciples. Whereas we've put it on the go. And we've got all guilt-ridden and everything about that. Um, and Jesus says, if you love me, you'll obey my command. In John 14. Now Jesus focuses on them, the people who are being made into disciples. He doesn't, he doesn't put the focus. Um, it's not about us. It's about others. Others have, we've been their focus. Now they're our focus. So making disciples is the focus of this particular passage. Um, this aligns us with Jesus' mission. Um, making disciples is what he wants us to do. There is no plan B. If this doesn't work, there's no plan B. But Jesus ensures that it will work. So the question for each of us today is, will I join Jesus in his mission? Um, PowerPoint six. How do we make disciples? What is a disciple? A disciple is a pupil or a learner. Someone who is devoted to another's teaching. A disciple is, of Jesus is a worshipper, a servant and a witness to his teaching. Not a witness to my teaching, a witness to his teaching. And when we go to the Bible, we go there, if we're teaching somebody about God, we go there for our message, we go there for our method, we go there for our motive, and we go there for our mission. So at the end of that, how do we make a disciple? It's a bit like making a cake really, isn't it? You know, you, you, you have to have ingredients, you've got to have the flour, the butter, you know, you've got to have a bit of heat. And after a process, you get a cake, and hopefully it tastes good. Well, that's the same with this process. Um, when we look at the Great Commission, um, as I said, we often go straight to the go, but the go, the baptize, and the teach are there to support the action of the verb, which is to make disciples. Okay, do you get that? So those three things are how you make a disciple. Now Jesus said, when he said go to the disciples, he was actually saying as you're going, because they're already doing it. So it's an assumption that we're already reaching out to people. And as Richard um, told us when we had that public declaration of people being baptized, um, it's a declaration of, of Jesus' death, burial, and, burial and resurrection, uh, an event that's already happened in a person's life. 
But when it comes to the teach, that's given over to us. We're the ones who are to teach them to obey. It goes more from, if you're a teacher, it's not like handing information out, you know, jug to mug. It's more a thing of um, modeling. So I'm going to make a disciple. I have to be a disciple to do that. So I have to be a follower of Jesus in order to do that. So what was Jesus' approach to um, reaching out to people? Now, most of us here know the story of the woman at the well. You know, Jesus meets this woman in Samaria, um, and she's coming to draw water. It's the longest dialogue in the gospel that he has with a person. So they discuss things, they have this dialogue. And then the woman comes to realize that he's the Messiah. And Jesus acknowledges that he's the Messiah. And because of that, she then goes back to her village and her family and her friends and tells them, come and see. So that's how easy it is to reach out. Come and see. Come and find out about Jesus. And then they come, and Jesus stays with them for two days, and then they declare, it's not just because of what you said, we now know that he's, he's not just the Messiah, but he's the saviour of the world. So that's just an overview of the story if you didn't really know it. And as I was looking at this story in John 4, it, it's 4, 1 to 42, so I didn't want to read it all out, it take too long. A song kept coming into my mind, and, and, I, and the Holy Spirit impressed upon me that it's a song for somebody here as well. And we all know it, and I'll sing the first little bit, something beautiful. Now you all know that, don't you? Good. All my confusion he understood. All I had to offer him was brokenness and strife. But he made something beautiful of my life. We come, we come to Jesus with an empty vessel. We come with brokenness. We come with strife. We come with pain and suffering. And that's all we've got to offer him. And Jesus understands. So if that's you today, Jesus understands. He understands where you're at completely. When Jesus came to this woman, it was intentional. Because in verse 4 it says that Jesus had to go through Samaria. Most Jews didn't go through Samaria. They didn't get on. So they went across the Jordan, hiked it up the Jordan, and went into Galilee that way, just to bypass them. Uh, they sort of looked at them as like mongrel dogs. They didn't like them all. But Jesus had to go through because he had a divine appointment. And it says that Jesus was filled with the Spirit without limit, and yet he still was obedient to the Spirit's voice to go through and meet this woman. So there's a divine appointment. I pray every morning for divine appointments that God will either draw people across my path or he'll bring them to me. And I'm never shocked. I'm never shocked when somebody, when a customer is wanting to be prayed for or somebody in a shopping center or wherever. So Jesus is intentional. And I love the idea of the gospels and the whole of the, the Bible that God's pursuing us. He's chasing after us. He'll never give up. 
And that's lovely to know that because I know that he did that with me. And I know, if I know he's doing that with me to, to get me, I know that he's doing it through me to reach others because he reached me through somebody else. So Jesus interacts with the woman. It's personal. And he breaks down all of these barriers, um, the, the barrier of gender. You know, Jews just didn't talk to women <laughs> in general, unless they were at home, I suppose. Um, he broke down the racial barrier. You know, they didn't mix with Sumerians. He broke down the moral barrier. He had a, a word of knowledge, of course. He knew that she had six husbands. But he didn't point the finger and say, you're a sinner, like the guy did with me on the street. And he broke down the religious barrier. And he basically said to the woman, you know, no longer will you worship in Mount Gerizim and the Jews worship in Jerusalem, but we will worship God in spirit. And that's what this is about today. So Jesus sees the need, he feels the need, and he meets the need. There's a verse in Matthew 9.36 which says, When Jesus saw the crowds, he was moved with compassion for them, because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. So Jesus sees with his heart, and he listens with his heart. So PowerPoint 7. We believe God created every person with value and potential. That's, that must be what we value mostly when it comes to each other and with people who don't know God. We tend to rank people, don't we, out of 10. You know, we've got fours. You know, we'll dodge them in the doorway because we don't want to talk to them. We, we rate people, um, clergy and laity, um, wealthy, powerful, influential, professional, non-professional. Um, whereas Jesus ranks us all a 10. <laughs> so he values us as a 10. And it's a bit like if you do go to the, dif to the default, it's a bit like um, a tree full of monkeys. It's great if you're at the top looking down because all you see is smiling monkey faces. But if you're at the bottom looking up, if you stay there long enough, you'll get dumped on. And I think, I think a few of us here know what that feels like. Now, Jesus shows mercy. And what is mercy? Mercy is God not punishing us as our sins deserve. That's value. Okay? And grace is a little bit different. It's God blessing us despite the fact that we don't deserve to be blessed. That's added value. And I don't know if you've ever seen those horrible irritating ads on the telly where they're flogging you a ladder and you get a free set of steak knives or something and they say, but wait, there's more. <laughs> it's a little bit like that. Jesus adds value and therefore we should add value to others. PowerPoint eight. So the ability to connect begins with understanding the value of people. To add value to others, you must first value others. You can't add it until you first value them as a 10. 
So God's grace adds value. He fills the emptiness with his spirit and gives eternal life. And that's exactly what he was offering the woman at the well. And she basically dropped her uh, emptiness, the, the vessel that she had, and she took off because now she'd found something lasting, something important, something that satisfied. And like Mick Jagger said, um, I can't get no satisfaction. And I tried, and I tried, and I tried, and I tried. I can't get no, 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 satisfaction. <laughs> and I think he's still trying. And hopefully he'll come to Jesus one day. <laughs> um, so eventually Jesus takes the woman from the known to the unknown. He reveals who he is, and he reveals that he's Messiah. Now she runs off to her people. Now there's a play on words here with Matthew because he uses um, the vision concept. And she says to her people, come and see. And in the meantime, the disciples have come back and they're sort of thinking, what are you hanging around with there for? We don't associate with them. And Jesus said, you're missing the point. This is why I came. I came to seek and save that which was lost. She needs to be saved. And so it's like a masterclass 101 for the disciples, and that what, a lot of this is what this was about, about t training his own disciples. And, um, and so he says to them in verse 35, open your eyes, look, the fields are white. And I wonder if this crowd is coming over the hill and he's pointing to them and using this as, as a figurative language. They were the ones that we should be reaching. The crowd, the ones that we walk past and quite often don't see with our hearts. I had a funny story of a lady in a cafe and she was explaining to a friend, you know, we spent $11,000 getting my husband's eye surgery done and he still can't see things from my point of view. <laughs> so I think we need to see things from Jesus' point of view when it comes to the Great Commission. PowerPoint 9. God wants to comfort the afflicted, but in order to do that, sometimes he is to afflict the comfortable. And sometimes we need a swift. So where should we make disciples? Where is our sphere of influence? What does influence mean? It's the capacity to have an effect on our character, our development, and our behavior. So that's what we do when we're making disciples. So the question is, where is your mission field? Where is your harvest? And you don't have to be Spock to use logic that it's not here. This is where we worship the Lord. Yeah, people can share, but out there in our everyday lives is where God wants us, wants us to, to do business. So who are the them? in your life. Statistically, we have between eight to 12 people in our sphere of influence. In the New Testament, it would seem that, that the gospel spread and the disciples were made through our oikos. Now, I, I wrote this two months ago, so I didn't know what happened. You know, this is all news to me with what happened with Russ and Mary. So 
what do we, um, where is our ICOS? Can you just turn that off? Because I don't know how to turn it off when it gets, my time's just run out. So I'm going to just, another five minutes and I'm finished. Um, so the Greek for oikos, good on you. You need a child to do things like that. I, <laughs> you're, you're a child to me, mate, I'll tell you. Um, so uh, our oikos, and I bet you didn't know you had an oikos till today. Uh, is our household, and there's spheres of it. It's not like our like nuclear family that we have. The Greek term, there were spheres, there were layers. And uh, so in Mark 5, 19, for instance, Jesus tells the person to go home to your people, which is oikos too, the people in your household, and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he's had mercy on you. So... I want to bring up the idea of oikos evangelism and discipleship or disciple making. So when you look through the, all through the letters, the 27 letters, we get this idea that the gospel is spread through households. And I'm not talking about door knocking. I'm just talking about how they gossip the gospel within the context of their everyday ordinary lives. Um, and it makes sense because God put us in families, didn't he? It created. When you have a baby in the hospital, you bring it home to your lovely little room that you've set up. But quite often when we look to only converting people, we leave them in the hospital and go home. The nurses will look after the child. And so those people get neglected. They're not, they're not grown as a disciple. They're not taught. Um, so God understands this. He's places in families to nurture and grow us. There are three distinct spheres of our oikos. Our common family, so that's our fa immediate family and extended family. Um, there's our, our common community, that's our friends, associates and neighbours. And then there's our common interests. So our work, sport, uh, you know, whatever we do. You know, God wants us to reach out in, into that area. And statistics say that's between 75 and 90% of people are believers because someone in their oikos household connected with them. So uh, PowerPoint number 12, which is the last one. So what's your plan, our plan, to reach your eight to 12 people in your sphere of influence? And it's a question that we need to look at. Who are the people in our lives that we can pray for. And as we've heard, there's an alpha happening that you could bring them along to that. Now, I just want to finish with one word, and it's a Hebrew word, and it's avoda. And it comes from the root avad. And the word is used three ways. Now, I want to emphasize, emphasize this when it comes to your everyday, ordinary lives, because it means worship, it means service, and it means your work. And to the Jew, the Hebrew, it's seamless. There's no distinction. And that is where they do spirituality. You probably can't find a word for spirituality in the Hebrew because of that. So my question is, what's your plan to reach your eight to 12 people? 
And I just want to finish with Romans 12:1. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Thanks. Mm-hmm.